0: Now, of course, if you've been tracking along with us, you might expect us to be back in Ephesians. We still are planning this spring. Uh, to finish our study of the book of Ephesians. Uh, We called a bit of an audible this weekend. The plan was this weekend all along for Pastor Sean to be teaching. Uh, And then later in the week, Pastor Sean started to not feel so well. And so um, as he was feeling sick, he is now on the men, feeling a lot better, uh, but not quite in time to preach. Uh, And so I got the call. I'm up here. You're stuck with me this morning. Sorry. Here we go. Um, But uh, gosh, no. Uh, (laughs) um, I I just, you know, what we did was rather than just try to jump into the text and prep something new, uh, we've been teaching through the book of Isaiah in our young adults ministry this spring, and it's just been so fruitful for us to see this epic New or Old Testament prophet uh, that the New Testament just quotes over and over and over again. Uh, and so I was reading through just some of the sermons and some of the teachings we've done and just thought this might be uh, an encouragement and a blessing to go to Isaiah 8 and chapter 9 this morning. And I was thinking of this because of an event that happened in my family's life last weekend. See, last weekend, not this one, but last, I had the opportunity to go and be the best man at my younger brother's wedding. And so um, I have, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah that was us at the wedding. Um, but we uh, I, have, I have three brothers and uh, this brother, Ben, is my youngest brother. He's nine years younger than me. Uh, and he married this wonderful woman. And so it was just such an exciting and beautiful day, an outstanding opportunity for us to celebrate my younger brother. It was just one of the best days of my life. Uh, and then in the midst of that wild and crazy day of people running all over the place and kids, you know, doing all the different things kids do at wedding, we managed to snap this photo. And this is a rare photo of the five of us being together, looking presentable and somewhat smiling. Okay, like that's a rare moment in my family. So we snapped this photo and we posted on social media and everyone's like, oh, that's great. Like what a wonderful, beautiful day. And it was. But then I was thinking about the text we're looking at this morning. And I was thinking about just the simple reality of how beautiful a moment like a wedding of someone in your family is. And it's so beautiful and it's so amazing and so remarkable. And yet one of the things I recognize in the midst of the world we live in today, is that there can be these beautiful moments in what can otherwise sometimes be a really difficult and treacherous road of life. And here's what I mean by that. I mean, just by looking at this photo, you look and you just go, oh, how wonderful. Everything's great. But then here's what I look at when I look at my children. So you got my youngest daughter there in the middle, Hope. Uh, And Hope is nine weeks old right now. Nine weeks ago, she was being born. We were at Los Robles. Our baby is being born. It's this beautiful, wonderful addition to our family. But what else was happening exactly nine weeks ago? Russian tanks and missiles were starting to fly into Ukraine. Like right as this baby is being born, this war is breaking out that just kind of shocks the world and everyone's seeing it. And so there's this beauty of a baby being born. And at the same time, Russia is invading Ukraine. And then we think back, okay, wait, was this the case for our son? And so you got my son Noah there on the left with suspenders and the bow tie. All right, this guy, he is born in March of 2020. All right, so like he's born and then the world shuts down. And, and, and so we're just like, oh, okay, hope is born when this crisis is happening. Noah is born during this crisis. And they got my daughter Grace on the right. Now, Grace was born in October of 2017, which might not ring a bell for you. But for me, I had family and friends in the town at the time. So in October of 2017, in Las Vegas, if you remember, there was a country music concert where there was this terrible shooting that happened. That was the night before we went into the hospital to meet our daughter. And so again, we welcome these three kids into the world and we've just kind of looked back across it and go, they're this amazing blessing. And yet each of them were born at this particular time of terrorism or war or plague or famine or heartache all over the world. And I'm tempted to think the Howard family is just uniquely unlucky, right? Like this just happened to happen to us. But here's my guess. If you were to tell me the month you were born and the year you were born in, and I were to put my finger on that month in a, in a annual or a calendar of the world, I bet you I would find some tragedy happening somewhere in some nation, in some city, in some country, in some family. I think what's true for all of us is we all were born into a world filled with darkness, There are beautiful and good and precious moments like weddings and births of children. There are amazing times we have, but none of us in this room are naive enough to think that this world isn't filled with darkness, the darkness of things happening between nations, the darkness of what can happen in our country, our state, in our family, in our individual lives. None of us are naive enough to think that evil is not on the march in this world. And so this morning, What I want us to consider in the midst of a world filled with darkness that all of us are in and all of us see the darkness creeping in different directions. All of us see the wickedness and the evil that's in this world. All of us see the confusion and the doubt that sometimes creeps into our own heart. Here's what I want us to remember as we look at Isaiah chapter eight and nine. It's this simple thing that we serve a God who declares, let there be light. Like I want you to remember the very first words on the lips of God in the Bible is let there be light in the midst of the darkness. So on the one hand, we wanna say that this world is filled with darkness. And on the other hand, we want to look to and remember this God who speaks and says, let there be light, that this was his agenda since the beginning. And I want you to see this in Isaiah chapter eight. We'll start in verse 20. It'll be on the screen or of course in your Bibles. It says this, consult God's instructions and the testimony of warning. Let me stop there. That sentence simply means what human beings have been supposed to be doing since the beginning. Consult God's instructions, do what God says. From the very beginning, God says, I created you, now do what I tell you to do. And Adam and Eve went, you created us and we're not gonna do what you want us to do. That's been the human story since the very beginning. God says, Here's how you should live. And we go, Thank you very much, God, but we're going to do our own thing. It was true for Adam and Eve. It's true for you. It's true for me. It's true for all of us. Consult God's instruction in the testimony of warning. It goes on to say, If anyone does not speak according to the word, they have no light of dawn. Like, in other words, this is a cryptic way of saying, If anyone's not going to listen to God, if anyone doesn't want anything to do with what God says, you're going to do your own thing because you've got this and you don't need God. There's no light of dawn. There's darkness over your life. Verse 21, distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. And when they're famished, they will become enraged. And looking upward, they will curse their king and their God. This is the human story. The human story is that God created us, put us in a perfect garden, and we raged against God. We cursed his rules and we cursed him. We said, forget you, God, I'm going my own direction, I'm doing my own thing, and I'm going down my own path. And because of that, the curse of sin is upon the world. All of us suffer in various ways. It is sin, it is wickedness, it is evil that has broken this world and brought darkness upon us. That is the Bible's story, that is the Bible's narrative that we curse God and we curse the authority put over us. And then verse 22 says this, then they will look toward the earth and they will see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into utter darkness. So, so, so one of the things I love about the Bible is the Bible is real and honest and gritty. It doesn't make up some kind of fairy tale, fairy tale world that we live in where everything's good all the time and nothing ever goes wrong. What does it describe our world as fi- being filled with? Distress, darkness, fearful gloom, utter darkness that we're thrust into. And let me tell you something. This teaching from the book of Isaiah, 600 years before Christ, flies in the face, flies in the face of everything, flies in the face of everything that our modern world says about the world. See, let me say it this way, that the modern worldview assumes that comfort is the norm. And whether you like it or not, you get sucked into that. I get sucked into that almost every day. My assumption is that I should be comfortable and that's the norm. When I turn on the faucet in my house, I expect water to come out when I flip on the light switch I expect lights to go on when I turn on my computer I expect the internet to work and I expect it to work fast right it's an expectation and when our internet doesn't work quite right or our water gets shut off or it's a little bit hotter than usual or it drops below 68 degrees in Southern California it's cold right we just we panic we don't know what to do We are so used to comfort in the modern world. We've made it our assumption that things should be easy. Things should be comfortable. Things should be nice. We should never have to struggle. That is a modern worldview. And it is a modern worldview based on the lie that based on our technology and our wealth and our money and our knowledge, things are getting better and better and better and better for all of time. But I want you to know that's not the Bible's view of the world. Listen, the modern worldview assumes that comfort is the norm. The biblical worldview assumes that suffering is the norm. It assumes you're going to suffer. It assumes you're going to struggle. It assumes there's going to be times of doubt and pain and heartache. It assumes there's going to be wars and famines and plagues. It assumes there's going to be heartache in your family, in your own body and your health and your life. See, the Bible gives a very real and gritty and raw picture of the world that doesn't assume everything's comfortable and easy, but rather sees it as difficult and hard. And here's why this matters. It's not just that I want you to pass the biblical worldview test, okay? I think when we have the right expectations or wrong expectations, it shapes how we see the world. I'll put it this way. Your expectations of the world will always shape your experience of the world. Your expectations always shape your experience. So I said nine weeks ago, my daughter Hope was born. If I, nine weeks ago, brought my daughter home and had the expectation that after a day or two, she would be sleeping through the night, (laughs) that's the wrong expectation. And if I had that expectation and she started screaming through the middle of the night, it would ruin my experience of having a new daughter. So what did we go in with the expectation of? It's gonna be a disaster for a couple months. We're not gonna sleep. We're gonna live on caffeine, but we're gonna come out the other side happier. That's the expectation, right? So we have an expectation and it shapes our experience. It's the same with something as simple as travel. You think about getting on an airplane and some of you enjoy travel, some of you don't, but but here's what we can all agree on. There's at least some frustrating parts of travel. Even if you like the idea of travel, you go to the airport, you sit in traffic on the 405 forever, you go through security, you're shuffled through, you're uncomfortable. And then you go into the gate and you sit on an uncomfortable seat and they shove you on the plane and throw you a stale sandwich. Like this is how it works, right? It's this uncomfort, this discomfort, but because we expect it, we can actually start to shape our experience of it. And the same thing is true with suffering in this world. If you have somehow bought into the idea that this world is supposed to be easy, you're never supposed to suffer, things are supposed to be great, people like you don't have to suffer, people like you don't have to get cancer, people like you don't have to go through heartache, people like you don't have to lose your job, people like you don't have to witness wars and famine and plague. If you think somehow the world is supposed to be easy and good and never hard, it will ruin your experience of this world. And yet when you have the biblical expectation that suffering is not some bizarre thing that might happen in your life, but it is a guarantee, it is coming. It will shape your experience of the world. And here's three ways I think it should shape our experience. Number one, I think Christians should be saddened by the suffering in the world. I think we should be deeply moved emotionally. I think sometimes we can live in this age where in social media and the news and this constant information through the internet, we can just kind of grow numb to all of the suffering in the world. So we hear about something that's happening and we're no longer moved deeply. We no longer care deeply. We just kind of see it and we write it off as another thing, another death, another tragedy and we stop caring or even worse. Here's what can happen to me and I wonder if this happens to some of you. Something like the Russian invasion of Ukraine happens and there's real heartache and real sorrow but for someone like me, I can immediately jump to all of the political arguments and reasons I can go, it's the Biden administration's fault or it's the Trump administration or the Obama administration or Bush administration or the Clinton administration. Like I can go down all of the reasons politically this happened and immediately get into the political fray and argument without letting what breaks God's heart break my heart. Like it should break your heart that there are moms with children who are running from bombs right now somewhere in the world. It should break your heart right now that there are moms who are having to decide which child gets to eat today. Like it should break our hearts that these types of things that are happening. And I get that our hearts can't be broken equally for everything all the time, it would destroy us. But if you are never moved, if you've grown so callous to the world, I think there's some work with the Holy Spirit that you need to do, that you might be moved with sorrow, moved with sadness for the pain and the suffering that has happened, not just in Ukraine, but all over the world, in our own nation, in our own community, in our own church. We should be moved with sadness. We should be moved with sorrow. We should weep with those who weep. Number two, though, Christians should be saddened by what's going on in the world, the suffering of the world, but Christians should be stirred by the suffering of the world. So the point isn't that we're just sad or we just feel things about it, but rather we are stirred to action, that we're stirred to pray, that we're stirred to give, that we're stirred to serve those who are hurting and in pain. I always hope we will be that kind of church. And we have historically been this church that's not just saddened by what happens in the world, but is stirred to actually help in some way, to pray, to serve, to give. So nine weeks ago, um, when this crisis began in Ukraine, we began to open up this giving fund, this Ukraine fund, where you could give to the work of the ministry happening in Ukraine. And you'll see a number of photos behind me of some of the places your money, your giving to this Ukraine fund has gone. And it's been remarkable to see what God has done through the generosity of all of us here at Calvary as we chipped in to serve those people in Ukraine. We've been partnering with Children's Hunger Fund, with a network of churches in Eastern Europe. We've been partnering with some existing uh, Ukrainian partners that we've had for many years who have been serving We learned from Children's Hunger Fund that partly through our donations, they've been able to serve over 400,000 meals to people who have been displaced and disrupted by this invasion. Some of the pictures you see here are our Russian partner um, who has just been working um, all all through the day. 5 a.m. he says he gets up most mornings. He's working until 8 p.m. just serving and loving. This is Pastor Ruslan who's just serving his community. And here's what's happened. We as a church have not just been saddened by what's going on there, we've been stirred by that. And that's what we as believers should always be. We should be stirred to action, stirred to motivation to do something, not just to feel deeply for the world. So listen, Christians should be saddened by the suffering of the world. We should be stirred by the suffering in the world. But finally, I wanna be clear that Christians should not be shocked by the suffering of the world. We should be the realists who know this is gonna happen, who know this is going to occur, We should not be shocked by the fact that terrible things like war happens in this world. Again, I think so many of us in the West have bought into this idea that we are at the end of all the bad things in history. The dark ages were back then. It's all enlightenment good going forward. Poverty is going away. War is going away. Corruption is going away. If you have somehow bought into the narrative that things are progressively getting better forever, that is a false enlightenment narrative. It is not the Bible's narrative. Things are not just getting better forever. Forever. The human beings that live today are just the same as the human beings who have always lived. Sin has corrupted our souls. There is wickedness, there is pain, there is natural evil in this world. And so when we see things in this world, we should be saddened, we should be stirred to action, but we should not be shocked. We should not be surprised that wickedness is on the march in this world. It goes on this way in verse 9. It says, nevertheless, or I'm sorry, verse 9, chapter 9, verse 1. It says, nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress, so chapter eight ends with like the world is a disaster. And if I were to end the sermon here, this would be like the worst sermon in the history of Calvary, right? The world's terrible, deal with it. Let's sing some songs, right? But, but here's the great thing about the Bible. Like I said, it's gritty and it's raw and it's honest, but it also strikes this hopeful note. And so my hope this morning is not just to say the world is bad, let's deal with it. It's to know that there's hope in the midst of it. It is to speak to someone who is here this morning who is going through a crisis, who is going through a dark season, who is walking through doubt and uncertainty and pain and suffering, who is aching for something in their family or in this world. I want you to see the note of hope this strikes because chapter 9 is a beautiful chapter in our scriptures. It begins, nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. Now, I want to be clear on what this says and doesn't say. You'll see those two words, gloom and distress. A lot of Christians, maybe even a lot of us, want it to say there will be no more distress distress. Like in other words, God steps in the scene. I trust God, God moves, and there's no more bad things in my life. Things don't go wrong anymore. Nothing's ever a problem anymore. We'd like to believe that, but that's not what the scriptures actually teach. It does not say there is no more distress. It says there is no more gloom for those who are in distress. Let me put it this way. Distress is inevitable. It's inevitable. If you're not in distress now, you will be someday. There is coming a day where you will suffer, where you will be in confusion and pain and heartache, where there will be loss and pain and things in this life that you have to deal with. That distress is inevitable. But then I want to point out, because it says there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress, I want to point out a number of things. See, I think distress is inevitable, but gloom and despair are optional. I think distress is inevitable, but bitterness and resentment is optional. I think distress is inevitable, but anger and rage are optional. I think distress is inevitable, but negativity and cynicism are optional. When I say distress is inevitable, it means suffering is coming. And when I say these things are optional, it doesn't mean they're not natural. All of these things are what stir up in me when I suffer, when I'm in pain, when things are hard for me. And yet, what the scriptures are gonna invite us out of and what the Holy Spirit of God is going to invite us out of is a habitual walking in gloom and despair and bitterness and resentment and anger and rage and negativity and cynicism. So what the world tells us to become is if you suffer, you should become angry. If you go through a hard time, you should be cynical. If things don't go well in your family, you should despair. This is the message of the world to us, but we as Christians have to stand up and say, no, that is not what we believe. Yes, I am tempted to drop into cynicism and despair and bitterness and resentment and anger and rage. But because of the Holy Spirit of God that lives in me, producing the fruit of the Spirit in me, I will go through despair, but I will not be bound to these things. This will not define my life. I will not be defined by gloom and despair and bitterness and resentment, anger and rage, negativity and cynicism. I will be defined by the Holy Spirit of God who produces love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, even in the midst of my suffering, even in the midst of my distress. It goes on this way in verse 1. It says, in the past he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. Verse 2, the people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and you have increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them and the bar across their shoulder and the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning and be fuel for the fire. So the God of the universe and the Lord of Israel looks toward his people through the prophet Isaiah and says, I know you're suffering. I know you're struggling. I know the darkness is creeping over your land. I know you're confused and in pain and hurting. And so many of you know exactly what that's like. And what God does is he makes a number of promises here. He says, it's not going to be like this forever. In fact, I wanna show you this, that in the midst of their suffering, the Lord is going to promise to do the following things. In the midst of the people of God's suffering, here's what God promises his people Israel. Number one, he promises to rescue his people from darkness. It says the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. In other words, you're not gonna walk in darkness forever. The light is going to break through. You're not going to feel this way forever. It's not going to be like this forever. I am going to rescue you. Number two, he promises to bless his people abundantly. In other words, he says here, you have enlarged the nation, increased their joy. Like Israel is feeling crushed on all sides, like their borders are shrinking. And God says, I'm going to enlarge the nation. I'm going to increase your joy. There's going to be a harvest and rejoicing for your nation. Number three, he promises to defeat the great enemy. Historically and contextually, this enemy is the, I'm sorry, the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrian empire is warring against the people of God, military campaigns and sieges and crushing the people of God. And to them, Assyria is the great enemy. And Isaiah goes, listen, God's gonna defeat them. God's gonna take them down. They're not gonna rule and reign forever. And it's exactly what God does. The Assyrian empire, not long after this is written, crumbles and falls to its knees. God is going to defeat the great enemy. And then finally, he's gonna bring a lasting peace. This is what the people of God were longing for, a peace that lasted not just for a few years or a few generations, but a peace that lasted forever. And the people ached for this and they longed for this and they believed for this. And they believed for this for hundreds of years until Jesus of Nazareth comes onto the scene. And Jesus begins his ministry. He's baptized in the Jordan. He goes out into the desert. He fasts and is tempted for 40 days. And then he begins his ministry And in one of his first public sermons, and one of the first things he says for everyone to hear, he quotes this exact passage in Matthew 4. He says, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. In other words, Jesus says, That promise that God made through the prophet Isaiah, I'm fulfilling it right now. What does Jesus do? Jesus rescues his people from darkness. This is the good news of the gospel that if you're confused, living in sin, living in darkness, if you feel stuck in an addiction, if you feel like life could never get better, Jesus says, that's the reason I came into the world, to rescue people like you. If you're online or in this room this morning and you're not sure what to do with God or if God would want anything to do with you, I want you to know that the whole story of Jesus is that Jesus came into the world to save sinners like me and sinners like you. That is why Jesus came, to rescue his people, Number two, Jesus came to bless his people abundantly. I think some of us have continually bought into the idea that God is this old man in the sky who's angry about everything you do. He's constantly bitter and he's constantly mad and he's constantly looking down on you with a scowl on his face. That is not the God that Jesus describes. It is not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible wants to bless you abundantly. The God of the Bible doesn't just love you in theory, he likes you in reality. He wants you, he sees you. He likes hanging out with you. He likes the sound of your voice. He wants to bless you. He wants to show his favor upon you. What does Jesus do? Number three, he defeats the great enemy. The great enemy of sin, death, and hell. Paul tells us that the final enemy to be defeated is death. And Jesus Christ comes into the world, dies on the cross. And two weeks ago on Easter Sunday, we remember that he rose from the grave, defeating death once and for all, so that for all of us who trust in Jesus, we will die one day. But the good news of the gospel is it's not forever. He's gonna raise us up into a new resurrected body. That enemy of death that takes us out, it doesn't have ultimate power. And then finally, what does Jesus do? He brings a lasting peace. Jesus brings a peace between us and God by his blood shed on the cross by forgiving us. He brings a peace between all of us by forming a people who are meant to walk in unity together. And he brings a peace into each of our lives where I can walk into every situation knowing that the God of the universe goes with me and that his Holy Spirit lives inside of me. If anyone doesn't know that peace, doesn't know the peace with God, the peace of God that is offered to you through Jesus, I wanna encourage you to call on the name of the Lord today. And through that act of calling on the name of the Lord, asking God to rescue and save you from the darkness, Jesus will come save you, forgive you of your sins, give you a peace that lasts forever and make you part of his family. It goes on this way in verse six. It says, for us, to us, a child is born and to us, a son is given and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called wonderful counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now here's what I know. Even if you're not a Christian, you've seen this on a Christmas card at some point. You've seen this around, you've heard this idea. To us, a child is born, a son is given. These four titles, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Hundreds of years before Jesus was born, this is prophesied about Jesus. And Jesus is born and fulfills every one of these. But here's what I need us to know. The first people who received the prophecy of Isaiah would have seen this, they would have heard this, and their first thought would not have been, oh, this is talking about the little Lord Jesus asleep on the hay. That's not who they're talking about. Like Ultimately, I believe this is about Jesus, but these people would have heard this and go, okay, here's how God's going to rescue us. He's going to give us a wonderful counselor. He's going to send a mighty God. He's going to send an everlasting father. He's going to send a prince of peace. He's going to send someone who does this. And so God sends prophets and priests and kings to his people. The entire Old Testament is the story of God sending these leaders to lead and love and shepherd his people, but none of them ultimately measure up. See, there were some good and wise counselors, but not wonderful ones. There were some mighty kings in Israel's history, but definitely not a mighty God. There were some fatherly figures who were filled with wisdoms, but they were not the everlasting father who the people were after. And there were some times of peace in Israel's past but not a lasting peace that goes on forever and ever. See, every king that ultimately came along to lead God's people may have been good or may have been bad. There was good ones, there was bad ones, but none of them ever did ultimately what God had sent them to do. None of them ever accomplished these four things. And then Jesus comes along. After all of these kings who had failed to measure up to this standard, and Jesus becomes the final king who does not fail and will not fail. This is our Jesus, Jesus is the final king who cannot fail, does not fail, will not fail. Jesus is the fulfillment of this prophecy. And so in the midst of the darkness, in the midst of the confusion and the pain, we look to Jesus. We look to him over and over and over again. I wanna get practical this morning. If you're walking in darkness, pain, addiction, confusion, heartache, whatever's going on in your life, if you are going through a season of trial, Can I give you four ways, four really practical ways to trust God in the darkness? Four ways to trust Jesus in the darkness. Number one, would you listen to him as your wonderful counselor? Listen to him as your wonderful counselor. Now, now when we hear counselor, we tend to think therapist because that's the way we use that word. Don't think therapist, think advisor, right? Like an advisor to a king or a president or, or to a prime minister. Think advisor, someone who's in the room saying, hey, you might wanna think about this. That's what Jesus is for us. He is our wonderful counselor. He has wise words to speak for us. And here's why this is so important. I don't know about you, but when I suffer, I tend to be thinking about me, my feelings, my emotions, my thoughts, and what's on my mind. And when all of us suffer, our temptation is to go, I'm just gonna do what I want to do because I know best. We struggle to listen to anyone else when we suffer. And here's what we're encouraged to do here. In the midst of the darkness, listen to God. Listen to what he has to say. Open his word, open the Bible. I know in suffering, hearing like opening the Bible doesn't sound like the first thing you might think of. But when you listen to God in the midst of your suffering, he can minister to you. He can be wise, this wonderful counselor in your life. And we need a wonderful counselor when we're suffering. So here's what I've learned. I don't know if you've learned this too. Um, There's a lot of times in my life I've suffered and it's not my fault. There's a lot of times I've suffered and it is my fault, but that's a different story. But there's a lot of times I've suffered and it's not my fault. It's not because I did something. It's because someone wronged me. Someone hurt me. Someone said something, did something. It caused me pain. But here's something I've learned and I'm sure you've learned it too. It can be not my fault and my reaction can still make it a lot worse, right? Like you can suffer and then because of your choices make things a lot worse. So what do I want to do? If I'm going to suffer and it's not my fault, I don't want to make it worse, And how do I not make it worse? How do I make it better? I look to God's word and I do what he tells me to do. I listen to him as my wonderful counselor. If you're going through suffering and pain and struggle and darkness and addiction and doubt right now, would you turn to the word of God? Would you open your Bible? Even if you haven't done so in a long time, just open your Bible this week and seek him as your wonderful counselor. Number two, worship him as your mighty God. Worship him as your mighty God. Um, The reason this is so important for us is, again, the tendency for all of us, maybe it's not for you, but the tendency for me when I suffer is to curve myself inward on myself, to think about my wants and my needs and my issues and what's going on for me. So like earlier in this week, I was feeling a little sick um, and and I went home a little early from work and I was sick and I was thinking about me and I need to go to the doctor and I need to get some rest and I need to take this medicine and I need to cancel this thing and I need to do that. I was thinking completely about me. And I get it for a moment if you're sick, like, okay, you're gonna have to take care of your body a little bit. But if that becomes a habitual pattern in your life where all you're thinking about is you, all your attention is on you, you're curved in on yourself, that is a recipe for misery. Because can't we all agree that the most miserable people we know are the people who think about themselves all the time? Those are the most miserable people we know. And so what do we wanna do in the midst of our suffering? We wanna worship Jesus. We wanna worship him as our mighty God. Worship does what? Worship gets my eyes off of me and onto Jesus. It's off of my circumstances and onto my God. And that's what I wanna do. I wanna get out of myself. And the best way to get out of yourself is to put your attention on God. It's to show up at church when you don't feel like it and worship anyway. It's to worship in the morning and in the evening and in the car when you're driving into work or to pick up your kids. It's to choose to worship in the midst of this, to get out of yourselves. Because when you focus exclusively on you, It's a path to misery. But when I worship my mighty God, I get my eyes off of me and onto him. Number three, would you talk to him as your everlasting father? Talk to him as your father. Now, when I talk about God as father, I know for some of you, that just rubs you the wrong way. Some of you had no relationship with your father and some of you wish you had no relationship with your father. It was brutal, it was hard, he ignored you, he hurt you. There was a million ways in which fathers can fail. I'm so aware of that. But here's what I'm gonna say about your God there's a God who wants to step into whatever role your father failed to step into. There's a God who wants to be the everlasting and faithful father. There's a God who wants to step in and be the dad who binds up your wounds, who stays with you, who listens to you, who leans in with you. And you can talk to him. And when I say talk to him, can I just give you a really practical way of praying that some of you don't take advantage of? Would you try to talk out loud to God? Like speak out loud to him. I think some of us get into the habit of prayers. you bow your heads, you close your eyes and you don't say anything out loud and you pray between you and God and he can hear you, he gets you. He, that's a valid form of prayer. But just the other week, I was in a bit of a prayer rut. And I don't know if you've ever been in a prayer rut, but I was in a prayer rut the other week. I just felt like my prayer life was dead. I didn't know what I was praying about. I was just kind of all over the place. This is what was happening to me. And then what I started to do was my daughter was born. So I started to take her on little walks throughout the neighborhood. And I don't know where this came from, but I just decided I was walking. I was gonna start praying out loud. So I just started praying. God, I just pray for my daughter. I pray for this, pray for this going on. And I just started praying out loud like neighbors are looking at me, cars are driving by like, that guy's kooky. But it's okay because it looked like I was talking to my daughter, um, right? But that's what I did. And let me tell you, it was some of the best prayer I've had in months. It was amazing. And now praying out loud has just kind of become my new thing. Even driving in this morning, I'm just praying out loud. Why? Because that just changes things for us. If you haven't prayed out loud in a long time, can I encourage you to do that today? On your drive home, Pray out loud. Now, if you've got like kids and family in the car, maybe wait, you know, or, or, or tonight in your room, or maybe just like get your car, drive around the neighborhood. Okay, gas prices, don't do that. But you know what I mean? Like, just like find a space to pray out loud. Sit in your back deck and just pray out loud. Just say, Lord, I just need to talk to you. Talk to your everlasting father. Because someone needs to hear this morning that he wants to listen. He actually cares what you have to say. And then finally, would you believe him as your prince of peace? Believe him, trust him, have confidence in him. Can I just say this clearly this morning? You have never gone through any suffering in your entire life that God was not bringing you for for a purpose. And that purpose is for your good and for his glory. And listen, I'm never gonna claim to know how God's mind works on that. If you come up to me and say, well, why did God put me through this? My answer is I have no idea. I just know he works all things for his glory and your good. And I want you to know that God has not brought you through anything in your life except for his glory and your good. Why do I believe that? Because I believe Jesus has our best interest in mind. And so I'm willing to endure the suffering that I go through in this world, the hard days, the tough things, the doubts, the addictions, the pains, all of the things, because I know that Jesus is working on me. I think of it this way. um, My least favorite place to go on the planet, and some of you will agree with me immediately on this, uh, is a place we have affectionately labeled the dentist office, Right? It's, it's the worst place, okay? And some of you are like, I love the dentist and I don't understand you, okay? But, but for me, the dentist is just this miserable place. You go and, and you open your mouth and they're like, here, let's take sharp sticks and just poke you for a little bit. And you're like, thank you. I'll pay you all my money for that, right? That's how it works. And so the dentist, but why do I put up with the dentist? The pain and the discomfort and just the, oh man, this is not pleasant at all. I put up with it for one reason and it is because I'm confident that he has my best interest at heart, that he is not doing this to me just to hurt me or to vent his frustration or just to mess with me a little, that he is actually trying to work toward my best interest so I'm willing to put up with the pain because I know he's doing something that's worth it in the long run. That's the same way I wanna trust Jesus. I wanna trust Jesus in a way that says, listen, there's darkness, pain, doubt, suffering, all of these things, but I trust he's bringing me through it for a reason. Would you trust him as your prince, of peace. Final verse in Isaiah, we'll look at chapter nine, verse seven says this, of the greatness of the government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Like in other words, God's gonna save and he's gonna rescue and redeem his people. He's gonna defeat the great enemy and he's gonna do it through this individual who's a mighty God, a wonderful counselor, everlasting father, prince of peace. And what is he doing all of this for? You see right here in verse seven, he is creating a certain kind of kingdom and he's going to establish and uphold this kingdom with two things. What defines the kingdom of God? Number one, justice that there will be justice in the land, that nations will not go to war with one another, that corruption and oppression and brutality and all of the different things we see in this world will go away. There will be a kind of societal holiness and righteousness, a personal holiness where people do the right thing. There is this kingdom of God coming where Jesus Christ will return in glory. He will put darkness and death and destruction and evil and wickedness to death forever. And there will be a new kingdom that is established forevermore. This is what we're heading toward. This is what Isaiah prophesies. This is what Jesus says is coming. This is what the New Testament says is coming as Jesus returns. The kingdom of God made manifest in this world. And why do we know this is gonna happen? The last sentence here. We know it's going to happen because the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Like in other words, it's not because we're really strong or clever or we're gonna get this all figured out as a human race. No, it's the zeal of the Lord Almighty that's gonna accomplish this. So what does this mean? The darkness that we walk in, the doubt, the pain, the addiction, the suffering, the pain of this life. Here's what I know about this. Based on the fact that what God's gonna accomplish through his kingdom, I can say these four words confidently. The darkness is temporary. It's temporary. It's just for a moment. The darkness, the doubt, the pain, the things you're walking through in your family, in this world, the pain, the doubt, the addiction, all of it is just for now. And there's going to come a time where Jesus puts it all to death. The darkness is temporary. And the reason I can say that so confidently today isn't because I'm smart, isn't because I know it, isn't because I have some sort of personal information or I'm just hoping things get better. I can say that so confidently because Jesus said these words in John chapter 8 and verse 12. It says, Jesus spoke with them saying, I am the light of the world and whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This is what Jesus claims See, Jesus makes a claim that he is the light of the world. And in the midst of the darkness, this light is shining. Jesus makes a claim, I am the light of the world. And whoever's gonna walk with me and follow me and be my disciple like we are here in this room, they're not gonna walk in darkness, but the light of life is forever going to reside within them. I wanna show it to you this way. Um, Our our lighting guys are gonna bring down the the house lights right now. And this is on purpose and intentional, not some catastrophic mistake. Um, And here's what I want you to notice. I brought out the flashlight probably about 45 seconds ago and you saw it, I turned it on, I was playing around with it, but it was easy to kind of miss because when there's light everywhere, it's actually kind of easy to miss a light like this. But the darker it gets, the actual easier it is to see this light. In fact, it's almost hard at this point not to notice this light that's flickering around the room. It was easy to ignore when everything was lit up, but now that it's gotten dark, it's harder to ignore the light. It is more contrasted. It is harder to ignore and it is brighter in your eyes than ever before. You know why this encourages me this morning? Because I look around the world and I think you do too. And you see the darkness falling, don't you? You see the way people are talking and the way people are behaving, the way nations are acting, the way people are on television or social media. You see the people in the world. You see the values they uphold. You see the ways they're rejecting God. You see the things that they're changing. You see all of the things that show that the darkness is following in this world. But can I tell you something beautiful? I wanna tell you why I don't fear that. I wanna tell you why that doesn't trouble me. Because as the darkness falls in this world, the light is more obvious than ever. As the darkness falls in this world, it is easier and more clear to see the light of Jesus who says, I am the light of the world than ever before. And we as Christians, I think when the darkness falls have two options. The first is that we can be a people who shake our fist at the darkness, who shake our fist at people who wanna change morality and change what we see and change how we talk. We can shake our fist at the darkness and the sinfulness of the world. But Calvary Community Church, may we never be that kind of people. May we never be a people who simply shake our fist at the dark because you can do that all day, all night, forever for the rest of your life and it makes no difference. Calvary Community Church, may we not be a people who shake our fist at the dark. May we always be a people who point our finger toward the light. Say, this is the light of the world. This is Jesus. This is what we're all about. And in the midst of the darkness, Jesus shines brighter. This is the hope we have. That Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And the darker it gets in the United States of America, the darker it gets in the world, the brighter Jesus will shine and the harder it will be to ignore him. See, John says something else in the beginning of his gospel. In the very first chapter, he says this, that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And that's a beautiful image, isn't it, right? Like when I turn on this flashlight and shine it around the room, it overcomes all of the darkness. The darkness doesn't overcome it. Like when I shine it here, the darkness doesn't creep in and take out the light. It's the opposite. The light pierces through the darkness. And if I were to take this flashlight, put it on this stage and leave it here for a thousand years, the darkness would not overcome the light. Now now that's not actually true, right? (laughs) Because the batteries would eventually die. Um, Eventually it would fade out. And after a a little while here, um, it would no longer be piercing through the darkness. So I guess for this metaphor to work, We would have to have an eternal kind of light source. We would have to have an unchanging, unfailing, totally faithful kind of light source. It would have to be the kind of light source that goes on forever and ever, is unlimited and ultimate and strong and people of God. Can we remind ourselves this morning that our light source is none other than the resurrected Jesus Christ seated at the right hand of the throne of God and Father. He will never fail. He will never falter. He will always shine. He will never let up on his people. This is what we stand on. So when John says the light shines in the darkness and the darkness will not overcome it, we, the people of God say, however dark it gets in this world, the light keeps shining. And that's what we stand upon. So we're not gonna shake our fist at the darkness. We're gonna be a people who point constantly to the light and say in the midst of the darkness, there's a light that shines and that light will pierce through every darkness. And there will come a day where the darkness dissipates, the light shines forever where Jesus Christ reigns in glory forever and ever. And we will celebrate him as King of kings, Lord of lords, and light of the world. Calvary, let's pray. Father in heaven, thanks for this morning. Thanks once again for the opportunity to open your word, to consider the words of the prophet Isaiah. God, I just pray for anyone in this room. And I know there are so many right now who are walking through darkness and pain and doubt and confusion. I know there's so many in this room whose families are aching, who are going through a loss, who are going through a heartache, who are going through a condition. God, I pray the light of your goodness would shine in the darkness. I pray that they would cling to the light when it seems like the world is getting darker, their life is getting darker. For the person who just feels like things are so heavy right now, would they be reminded that the light shines and the darkness cannot and will not ever overcome it? God, I pray we would be a people who point to the light, who celebrate the goodness of Christ and who lift him up as the light of the world. God, would you help us as we sing, as we live, as we go from this place, we pray in Christ's name and all God's people said, amen.